Please take your Bible and turn me with me to the book of Revelation, the third chapter, Revelation chapter 3. I'm going to read verses 1 through 6. This is one of the seven letters which Jesus gave to the church in Asia Minor in its various locations. These letters were addressed in each case to the angel of that particular church. We saw last week when we looked at the letter to the church at Laodicea that the angel really was the pastor of the church. The word angel itself in the original language primarily means messenger. And the pastor was the messenger. And that's what a pastor teacher is, quite frankly. The pastor teacher doesn't come up with his ideas if he's really a biblical pastor and then share his ideas with the people of God. Rather, he goes to the Word of God, seeks the Lord's guidance to rightly divide the Word of truth, and the message emerges from the Bible. It's not his idea that he goes to the Bible to get support for. Rather, it's God's message given to us by the Spirit through the teacher of the Word of God. It's a heavy responsibility that a teacher has. I'm going to Not pat myself on the back, but remind myself, okay? I was reading in my quiet time this morning in James chapter 3. And James warns those who received his letter. He says, let not many of you become teachers, because teachers will incur a stricter judgment. In my lifetime, I've probably said several million words in a place like this. And I'll have to give an account for every one of them. And you will too, for those that you hear, they are from the Lord. The scripture says, And the angel of the church, to the angel of the church in Sardis write, He who has the seven spirits of God and the seven stars says this, I know your deeds, that you have a name, that you are alive, but you are dead. Wake up and strengthen the things that remain, which were about to die. For I have not found your deeds completed in the sight of my God. Remember, therefore, what you have received and heard, and keep it and repent. If, therefore, you will not wake up, I will come like a thief, and you will not know at what hour I will come upon you. But you have a few people in Sardis who have not soiled their garments. And they will walk with me in white, for they are worthy. He who overcomes shall thus be clothed in white garments, and I will not erase his name from the book of life. And I will confess his name before my Father and before his angels. He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. The Quaker theologian Elton Trueblood described American Christianity as being of the cut flower variety. Cut flowers are good for one purpose, to decorate. And cut flowers are fit for one environment, cold storage. Trueblood chose his metaphor for the church wisely. Many churches' only value is for purpose of display and temporary display at that. They set up shop on Sunday but hustle back to the morgue in vampire-like fashion before dawn of a new week causes them to decompose. Such churches 
have the stench of death about them because they have cut themselves off from their lifeline, the Lord Jesus Christ. This passage of Scripture teaches us about cut flower Christianity. It's a cautionary tale, but it's more than a tale. It's the truth, and we need to hear what the Spirit of God might be saying to us today. The first thing that we learn about cut flower Christianity from Jesus in this passage of Scripture is that cut flower Christianity gives the appearance of being alive. Look at verse 1 again, the last part. I know your deeds, that you have a name, that you are alive, but you are dead. The word name, in some translations, is translated reputation. I like that. So let's substitute that. I know your deeds, that you have a reputation, that you are alive, but you are dead. This church in Sardis had a great reputation. And they had a good reputation with the other churches in Asia Minor, which we know in modern day is Turkey. The other six churches And undoubtedly, from time to time, representatives from those churches would meet for fellowship and to discuss doctrine, realizing that this is the first century church that is being addressed. With other churches in Asia Minor, you might call them an association of churches, this church had probably the best reputation of all the other churches. They were progressive and innovative, always on the cutting edge. The church was noted probably for its professionalism. Gaines Dobbins, a former spokesperson for education in our church background, said this about this church. This church counted noses and nickels and probably had plenty of both. Noses people, whenever they gathered to worship the Lord, the place was standing room only perhaps. And when the offering was received, there was always a surplus. They were into those things which were, for appearance, perhaps more than real. They were in the black financially. They oversubscribed their budget. Whenever the pastors of the area got together, when things would get a little slow, one of them would come, and there were six others, one at a time probably would come and sidle up and just sort of, as an aside, ask that pastor of the Sardis church, hey, what's your secret? Pastors are always looking for a secret of how their church can grow, and they don't go to churches which are shrinking to get the secret. They want to know. They want to capture that magic in a bottle. But the reality is these persons were talking to the wrong pastor. They should have been listening to the good shepherd, the good pastor, the buen pastor, Jesus himself. They were not undergoing trials either. That's pretty interesting. Sounds like a beautiful place to be a pastor. No trouble, no internal trouble. People weren't fussing and fighting. They were getting along well. They weren't coming with a lot of complaints to the pastor at Sardis. But there were no external pressures either. The tendency among believers is to evaluate a church's church's success by the relative ease of life associated with that particular church. They were popular not only with other churches, but also with the world. The way we know this is that 
There was no persecution going on. And we know what Jesus says. He says, in this world you will have trouble. And the Apostle Paul picks up on that in the book of 1 Timothy chapter 3, 12. He says, if you are in Christ, you will have persecution. All those who desire to live godly in Christ Jesus will have pushback from the world. They were popular with the world because there wasn't enough life to make them offensive. Now let me stop here, lest I be misunderstood. It would be wrong for me or for you to try to turn people off. That's not our mission. We're to turn them on to Jesus Christ, aren't we? Our responsibility is I see it in Scripture, and it's clear as the nose on your face too when you read the New Testament, is to follow Jesus. Follow Jesus. Paul says it this way, imitate me as I imitate Christ. And you might say, how do I follow Jesus, Mike? He's not even here. Well, he is here. He reveals himself by the Spirit in his Word. We have four Gospels in our Bibles which draw us to Jesus. And by Jesus' own description of himself, he said before he ascended into heaven, after his resurrection, he said this. He said that every book in what you and I call the Old Testament bears witness to him. He is the subject of each of the books of the Bible. So, we're not called to get in people's faces and be aggressive toward them in the sense of trying to turn them off or tell them off, and so turn them off. Our responsibility is to follow Christ. And if we follow Jesus, we will be like Him. And if we are like Him, we will indeed be rejected because of the gospel. He was crucified for the gospel. And what is the gospel? Christ died for our sins according to the Scriptures. He was buried and He was raised again on the third day according to the Scriptures. And a live church will always be under attack. It will not find favor in the world because it will serve as Christ's representative in the world. And we know what Jesus says in John chapter 3, that people will not like the message that I'm speaking, that I came into the world, that through the world, the world might be saved. They don't like to be told they're sinners. They resist the idea. It infuriates them. But what Christ says is because man loves the darkness, men outside of Christ will reject me and they will reject you as you follow me. Now you might say, well, Mike, that's not all that appealing to me, I don't necessarily want to suffer persecution. But let me just say this. The alternative is not a good alternative. We don't have to go looking for rejection. It will find its pathway to us if we follow the Lord. So this church was popular with the world, popular not with the Lord, though. What does Jesus say in verse 2, the last part? I have not found your deeds completed in the sight of my God. What was the mission of the church? 
It's a rather simple mission. If you go back to chapter 2, when Jesus is speaking to the church in Ephesus, verses 4 and 5, and this church in Ephesus was a beehive of activity, and they were doctrinally sound too. But look what Jesus says to them in verses 4 and 5. I have this against you, that you have left your first love. What was the problem in the church at Ephesus? They had left their first love. Who was their first love? Jesus. And Christ wants us to understand this. Their work was a work of faith because when some folks came to Jesus and asked him, what must we do to do the work of God? This is found in John chapter 6, verses 28 and 29. This is what Jesus says. This is the work of God that you believe in him whom he has sent. The work of God is a work of faith. And faith comes from hearing, hearing from the word of God. And we follow what we hear with a readiness to obey the Lord. I haven't found your deeds complete in the sight of my God, is what Jesus says to this church. They may have pleased men, but not God, because they weren't walking by faith. They were depending upon themselves. Their works didn't measure up to God's standard, for they were only formal and external. They had no mooring in who they were as people in whom Christ dwelled. This is a fictitious tale I'm going to share with you, and you'll know that right away. There was a former pope who was diagnosed with severe heart trouble. He had an audience with a throng of people, as the popes are prone to do from time to time, in St. Peter's. The place was filled. When he came to the balcony, he was assisted by an aide, Just the aide and the Pope were there. And the Pope came to a rousing applause. The people cheered and clapped. And then he said, Dearly beloved, I have just come from seeing my cardiologist, and he tells me that I have heart failure. And there was this ooh that came over the whole crowd. No. And he said, My doctor says I'm going to have to have a heart transplant if I have hope of surviving. And then another moan came. He said, I have reason to believe that God has someone in this crowd who will be the donor for the heart. And then unsolicited, the people all over started saying, let it be me, came from one person and another. It was a chorus, thousands of voices, let it be me, let it be me, let it be me. And he said, I knew you would feel this way, so I brought my pillow that I sleep on, and my aide has a knife, and he just nodded to the aide, and he took the pen knife, cut the pillow, it was a feather pillow, and he pulled a feather out, gave it to the Pope, and the Pope said, I'm going to drop this feather over the balcony and the person upon whom it drops will be the donor. And all of a sudden, they in chorus said, let it be me and let it be me and let it be me. So he let it drop and it was wafting very gently down. There was not a heavy breeze that day until you could hear an occasional Well, the Word of God says 
These people honor me with their lips, but their hearts are far from me. That gets close to home in my life. How close is your heart to the Lord? Remember, man looks at the outward appearance. We draw conclusions about what we see. God looks at the heart. God's not really interested a lot about what you say or what I say. He's interested in your heart. Have you set apart Christ as Lord in your heart? Do you keep your eyes on the Lord? Do you follow Him? Do you imitate Him? Would you say you are that kind of follower of Christ? How well do the elements in the church program of this church measure up by God's standards? We must deal resolutely and impartially with any activity this church engages in which does not bring honor to God and mirror Christ. Anything that's superficial as opposed to that which is fundamental must be jettisoned by any group of believers. And we know that a group is comprised of the individuals. Instead of clinging fast to Christ's name, the Sardis church clung fast to their own name. They're reminiscent of the Tower of Babel people. Remember what their motivation was for building a tower and it, to reach to the heavens? What did they say? Come now, let us make a name for ourselves. Talking about the inhabitants of what did become Babylonia. God, of course, did not take kindly to that. The Sardis church carefully guarded its reputation, for they had worked hard to develop it. This church was the image-conscious church intent on keeping up appearances. And a live church doesn't have to keep up appearances. It doesn't have to work at developing a name for itself. Jesus will see that any church where he is in his rightful place as the head of the church and the Lord of the church, he will publicize the church. If we were to take time to go to the Gospel of Mark, the first chapter, at the end of that chapter, Jesus encounters a leper, and he heals the leper. And he tells the leper, don't go talking about it. Have you ever noticed how frequently that happens in the Gospel of Christ? How he'll say, don't go tell people, and what do the people do? They're just like our kids, don't, aren't they? They go do what they were told they weren't to do, Right? So he goes, and as a result, Jesus, who with his apostles had retired to an area that was a private area. It was not like a private area within a city. They went out in the country so they could get some R&R, spend some time together, Jesus discipling that group. And the Bible says it's fascinating. The last line is easily overlooked in Mark 1.45 that people were coming to Jesus from everywhere. There was no way of communicating except by word of mouth. But here's another form, and this is the form of communication for the church of Jesus Christ. It's the Holy Spirit was drawing them. I must say that wherever Christ is Lord, wherever Jesus is truly worshipped, then people will be drawn to that place. It doesn't matter how much effort we put into drumming up people to come here. 
Jesus has to be the one who is the attraction. And he said, if I am lifted up from the earth, I will draw all men to myself. For all its appearances of being alive, this church was dead. It's a picture of Christianity in name only at its worst. Outwardly prosperous, busy with the externals of religious activity, but empty of spiritual life and power. It echoes what Paul wrote in 2 Timothy 3, where he says, they have a form of godliness, but deny its power. John Stott said, this church's works were beautiful grave clothes, which were but a thin disguise for the ecclesiastical corpse. The members of this church may not even have known that they were dead. Each week they thrilled and thronged to the extravaganza called worship. Their emotions were tickled by the beautifully arranged and performed music, and their intellects were stimulated by the logically ordered mind of the pastor as reflected in his sermons. But their wills were unmoved. In our church, we want to be a church that is animated by the Holy Spirit, which does not preclude or exclude excellence. Let me be sure to say that. Because when we love the Lord, we want to do our best for the Lord. And we know if we are walking in the Spirit that the very best thing we can do is get out of the way and let the Spirit of God work through us and not try to be people who impress people who come here to be led in worship. In order to decide if we are a spiritual descendant of this church, let's consider the characteristics of a living organism. Every living organism is growing. It's growing because of the quality of the life resident in it. And it grows larger and larger, does it? But in order for the growth of a church of Jesus Christ to enlarge without diminishing its influence, there has to be the qualitative growth that only the Holy Spirit of God can bring to pass through the Word of God in a church. We know that from Ephesians chapter 4, where people who have the speaking gift, whether it's that of the apostle or the prophet or the evangelist or the pastor, teacher or teacher, unless those people are in sync with the Lord, listening to the Lord, receiving truth from God's Word, not making something up, but going to God's Word and letting God speak through Him, then that is not the kind of ministry that is characteristic of God's will. So churches that are growing are growing qualitatively, and then they will grow numerically. They're also reproducing churches. We are born to reproduce Jesus says, you did not choose me, but I chose you and appointed you that you should go and bear fruit, fruit that remains. Go and bear fruit. That requires getting up from where you are and going somewhere, doesn't it? So we have to be a follower of Christ, and we're following him, and the result will be that people come to know the Lord Jesus through our lives. When I was just starting as a pastor 40 years or so ago, I was listening to a fellow pastor here in El Paso, Juan Villanueva. And he gave a message. It left an indelible impression upon me 
It was so good of the Lord to have him give me that message. Among others, there were other pastors present. And the gist of it, and I wrote it down because I didn't want to forget it. This is what he said to us pastors. He said, we don't need bigger nets in our church. We need bigger mailboxes. He's talking about people that were just shuffling around from church to church to church to church. He said, we are not postmen as pastors. We are fishermen because Christ has called us to be fishers of men. That's what's true of every person in this room who knows Jesus. We are men and women who he's called out of darkness into his marvelous light to tell the good news. Living things are growing and also living things are reproducing. By this is my Father glorified that you bear much fruit and so prove to me and my disciples. Next weekend, it's going to be a great weekend. As you have prayed for people whom you know and love and they respond, you come here. And we'll pray when we're here. We won't have a prayer meeting per se, but there's always should be a prayer meeting going on when we're having a meeting like this. Do you know that? Do you pray when you hear someone preach or hear someone sing? We ought to pray without ceasing is what the Bible says. But God will do a work here. Another thing that's true of that which is alive, it's unified. All living things are organized. Even the simplest single-celled animal is organized. We must guard against the organism of the church becoming an organization, treating it like a business. It is unique. It's an insult to Christ to treat His body, the church, like a business. That doesn't mean that we don't have principles here. We have the best principles which are outlined in Scripture which will help us as a church to be the church of Christ. The presence of factions speaks of absence of life. Unification is what God wants. He says how good and pleasant it is when brothers live together in unity. Nothing like it to the Lord. He loves it. Disintegration in any organism is a sign that that organism is dying. And nothing is desired more by Satan to come and just fragment or attempt to at least fragment the body of Christ. The last characteristic of growing things, and I'm not a scientist, it's obvious, but you can think of others, I'm sure, but one would be sensitive to stimuli, which leads to this observation about this text. The first of which is that the Sardis church had the reputation of being alive, even though it wasn't. Here's the second thing. Cut flower Christianity can be received only, revived rather, only by the Holy Spirit. Look at chapter 1 again, verse 1 rather, or chapter 3. I know, he says, he who has the seven spirits of God and the seven stars says this, I know your deeds, that you have a name, that you are alive, but you are dead. The word seven is the number of perfection in biblical thought. And this spirits of God, you notice it's capitalized if you have the New American Standard Version of the Bible. But it is, in fact, a reference to the Holy Spirit of God. It's a way of speaking of the Holy Spirit of God. 
It echoes Isaiah chapter 11, verses 2 and following, where the Messiah is to have this sevenfold reflection of who God is. And Jesus embodied that in his own life. Jesus had the Spirit without measure. Do you know that we have the Spirit without measure if we trust Christ? Do you know that? Because of His fullness, that is the fullness of Jesus, the Bible says, we have all received. It's not something for just a few of us. We who know Christ, we have all received, is what the Bible says. I take that literally. It is the Spirit of life. The Holy Spirit is. That's what Paul writes. The church can only be revived by the Holy Spirit of God. We're going to have a great preacher come next weekend, Jim Shaddox. We're going to have great music next weekend, led by Elvin Porfrey. We're going to have a blessing to have them here. But they're not coming to put on a show. They're coming here to be tools of God. And we, as a church, need to understand that God's wanting to revive this church by the Spirit. Does He need Jim Shaddix? No. Does He need Elvin Porflet? No. He needs our hearts to be hungry for Him to work in our lives first, but in the lives of our friends and family. A former president of our denomination wrote these words. His name was Carl Bates. He was a pastor of a large church in North Carolina at the time. The Holy Spirit could withdraw from the church of Jesus today and 95% of our work would continue and we would brag about its success. Let him who boasts, boast of this, the Bible says, that he understands and knows me. No room for boasting. A group of missionaries were making a foray into the bush of Africa They camped near a colony of monkeys for several days. They would use that place as a base camp. They'd go and minister to nearby villagers, then they would come back at night. One time they came back and they heard just a lot of noise coming from the camp, and they knew it was from the monkeys. So they quietly crept up so as not to disturb what was happening so they could see it. And when they got there, what they saw was these monkeys were gathering wood And they were piling it up in the middle of the camp. And then after they had gathered the wood, they circled around it. And they made motions that they had seen the missionaries make. Building a fire, putting their hands right out to where there was no fire. The problem was obvious. There was no fire. Do you know the Holy Spirit, among other things, is described as being Fire. Without the fire of the Holy Spirit, the church's activity is meaningless. We might as well not even show up here anytime. In order to be revived, cut flower Christianity must hear what the Holy Spirit is saying. Look at the last verse of our text. Look at verse 6. He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. What is he saying? He's saying, wake up. Isn't that what Jesus says to this church? In verse 2, wake up. It says, actually, keep on waking up. Keep on being watchful is really what he's saying. This would have resonated with those who first received this because in the history of Sardis, there had been two occasions when 
because they were invincible in their own minds, they didn't put a guard around their city. The city was on an elevation. It was just like this little small mountain jutted out of the plain there in the Hermas River Valley. And it was 1,500 feet. Three sides of that mountain were cliffs, just sheer drop-offs. There was only one way into the city. And twice in the history, once in 549 B.C., the Persian emperor Cyrus brought his forces and conquered. Then 300 years later, in 218 B.C., the king of the, the nation of Crete came. His name was... What was his name? Oh, yeah. <laughs> it was Antiochus the Great. He came and conquered by night, I might add. That fits with be watchful, doesn't it? Of course it does. So what we see here is the need of prayer in our church. We need prayer sentinels, as it were, around the figurative wall that the Lord has built. Praying. We need men of God who serve in eldership. You know, one of the synonyms for an elder is an overseer. That would be one who takes responsibility for the church, cares for its life. Return to reality is really what Jesus was saying here. You've been living a surreal existence in a dream world. This church was the sleeping beauty of Asia Minor, the Rip Van Winkle, if you will, of Washington Irving. You remember the little short story, Rip Van Winkle? This man who was traipsing around in the woods, just sort of passing the time away, hunting, but really not that intent upon killing anything. He got tired, sat down in front of a tree, fell asleep. And the, the book says, the, the story says, when he awoke, the whole 20 years he slept, can you imagine? Seemed to him as one night. He slept through the American Revolution. We are in danger all the time if we're not alert to sleeping through a spiritual revolution. A comatose body wastes away. This church, with a few exceptions, ceased abiding in Christ and was wasting away. They are told to strengthen. Strengthen. That word means to stabilize. The church was unstable. It was not based on the word of the Lord in the person of Jesus Christ. And they were to remember. This does not mean bring something from way back to the front. What it means is to continually remember what you're being taught today. What you've received. And this word translated received in the passage of Scripture is a word which means have received as a permanent deposit. The grammar would indicate that in Jesus' mind... Once you receive what he has, the gospel, then it's not going to be taken away. It's a permanent deposit. And you're to keep it, he says. And this means to guard it and also to pass it on. That's what we are to do. We are to obey the word of God. That's what keeping it means also. There was a few, were a few people who had not soiled their clothes. That means they had, despite the environment around them, they had not been absorbed into the 
environment. It was a luxurious city. It was a city that was very prosperous, but it was very promiscuous too because the chief false god was Sybil and she was worshipped in orgy form. And that had seeped into the church. You can't expose, nor can I, ourselves to things that are promiscuous by seeing what we see without becoming people who are tainted by that and begin to move further and further away from the Lord. I just want to remind you that we will be victorious according to what Jesus teaches when we trust in the Lord and obey the Lord. Now, I want to finish with an illustration and in a reference to what was read earlier. The illustration is of a man who was in our church. His name was Greg McKinley. Greg came out of a life of what would be considered worldliness. He was born to a father who was a pastor. His mother and father divorced when he was still a young child. He was the middle of three children. His father lost contact with the family because the mother went into severe mental health issues and she never could stay put one place. She was moving all the time. He thought, as did his brother and his little sister, that their father just didn't care for them because they never heard from him. Never heard from him. To their surprise, after Greg had reached adulthood, they discovered that their father had tried so hard to reach them, but he never could find them. And all of a sudden, there was great relief for Greg. And about that time, and I think it had to do with that fact that he had been found by his father, who was a believer, true believer in the Lord, by the way. And he went on a quest to find the truth. He studied Hinduism, Taoism, Confucianism, Buddhism. You name the ism, he studied them all in hopes of finding the truth. He wanted to compare and contrast. He was the area manager of all the McDonald's on the west side. All of them. And he would go every day to every one of those. And the one right at the foot of Thunderbird, he would come. And there was one of our deacons. This has been over 20 years ago. His name was Jack Coffey. He's with the Lord now. He left here. He and his wife did. And he's with the Lord. And Jack was very outgoing for the Lord. And he came up. He introduced himself to Greg. They talked about their lives. And he said, tell me about yourself, Greg. And he told him. He said, hey, Greg, why don't you come to our church? You see, Greg's daughter was in our daycare. And she was the daughter of an unwed situation. And he said, you know, I'll, I'll think about that. He came. A friend who was a customer, asked him to come. And he came. And he began to really inquire. He came to both services on Sunday morning. He sat right over here, right over here. And he would be there. I was preaching on the temptation of Jesus from Matthew 4. I'll never forget it. And I'd put all my notes aside that day in the second service because I said, I'll remember, I'll remember, I'll remember. And this is over 20 years ago, so you know I had a momentary lapse here this morning and I had the notes right in front of me. So lots of happens is then. But nevertheless, I got to my third point. I said, my third point is, my third point is, I said, come on, Lord, help me. And the Lord didn't help me except 
He helped me through Greg, and Greg gave me the third point. It's awesome. He wasn't even a Christian yet. He gave me the third point. I said, thank you, Greg. I really appreciate that, and finished the message. Well, he came to the Lord not too long after that. He gave his life to the Lord, and he was almost full grown when he came to the Lord, and he was a man. He was a black belt in Kempo, which I think is a form of karate. I'm not sure. It was martial arts anyway. And it was in the double digits. I don't know what degree he was, but he was way up the line. He was a big man. He was a man's man. When he came to the Lord, change occurred immediately. Why did the change occur? It occurred because of Jesus coming to live in his life by the Spirit of God. And we would meet. Every week we'd meet for disciples. And he said, Mike, I'm going to tithe. Well, I'd never taught on tithing since he'd been here. I wondered, I said, where did you get that, Greg? The Bible teaches it. I want to do it. Here's what we are apt to do. When someone comes to Christ, we want to give them a box. And we say, do this, do this, do this, do this. Don't do that, don't do that, don't do that. And you'll be a good Christian. That's a problem. Are we supposed to do things differently after we come to Christ? Absolutely. Are we supposed to refrain from doing things that are out of keeping for one who follows Jesus? Absolutely. But if that's all we teach people, then they're never going to grow spiritually. They're going to become legalists. And they will eventually damage other people and or drop out or both because of their viewpoint. But Greg fell in love with the Lord. I knew he was a smoker. I could smell it on him when I was with him. And I never said a word to him about it. Then you may think, well, smoking's not sinful. We won't debate that right now. But he kept it from me in the sense he never lit up in front of me. And then he came in one day in one of our discipling groups and he said, Mike, I'm quitting smoking. I never told him. I didn't tell him to quit this, quit that, or quit the other. We just got into the Word of God. He was memorizing Scripture. He was reading his Bible. He was following Christ. And Christ made it clear to him what he was supposed to be and what he was supposed to do. He gave his life to the Lord. It's interesting. I told this story. I had not intended. It never had crossed my mind. I was going to share this story, his testimony. He died, by the way, just like that. I was at the hospital when he died. He, I was with him. In a social setting on a Friday afternoon, he had a cerebral hemorrhage within an hour of that. He was taken to the hospital, 38 years old, and he died. But he went right to heaven. I was thinking today after I told this story this morning, I said, Greg, if you're listening, thank you, brother. Thank you for being a good testimony and a good witness. And his life continues to make a difference because... He obeyed the Lord. He obeyed the Lord. And that's what God wants from you and me. And he gives us the power to do that. In Ezekiel 37, what does the Lord say? Can these bones live? He says to Ezekiel. And what does Ezekiel say? Only you know, Lord. And then we see the Lord saying more than once, I'll breathe on you or I'll put my breath into you. Do you know what the word breath in Hebrew is? It's the word ruach, 
which means wind. And it's the word for Holy Spirit in the Old Testament. The Lord puts His Spirit in us and He revives us. He makes us new. When we are dead in trespass and sin, He makes us new and He gives us eternal life. And the power and the presence of the Spirit of God in us to be men and women whose lives are cutting edge in this world for the Lord. Let's pray. Thank you, Lord, for the way you speak to us, even today, by your Spirit, through the Word of God. Help us not to be cut flower Christians. Rather, help us to be people who humbly submit ourselves to you and faithfully follow you. And for those who aren't here, Lord, who are here, who are not believers, we just pray for their salvation today. If you don't know Christ today, do you know how you can become a follower of Jesus? Do you want fulfillment, the kind of peace that Valeria spoke of, that she was looking for and didn't find until she met the Lord? It's in Jesus, just asking Him, Lord, take control of my life. I give you full control of my life. I surrender to you. Thank you, Lord. Amen. Amen.